Well, good morning. How good to see you. At 3.30 this morning, I heard a voice, and it was followed by a tap on the door. And I thought, at last it's happened. It's my Samuel moment. And I was on the verge of saying, speak, Lord, thy servant heareth, when the voice broke into song. And I quickly realized it wasn't the Lord singing. We had the delightful presence of a couple of drunk young men running up and down the corridor. So after a while, I turned to Heather and I said to her, Heather, where is Rosaria when you need her? And well, she said, there's the tea and there's the kettle uh, and we could do something. But then the uh, constabulary arrived and um, <laughs> encouraged the rest of us to remain in our rooms. So as I was reflecting on this incident at about five in the morning now, um, I wondered to myself, is, is this talk so important that the devil doesn't want you to hear it. And then I thought, perhaps it's so bad that the Lord doesn't want you to hear it. (laughs) Let's read. You can make your own mind up about that. We're going to read from Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Philippians chapter 3. Further, my brothers and sisters... Rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, but it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve or worship God by a spirit who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness Based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. 
Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let's live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and I tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Paul begins this part of his letter with a safety announcement. It's a warning. In fact, there are two of them in this part of the letter. One at the beginning where we were reading, and one towards the end. And in each of these warnings, what Paul does is to set out the danger, the wrong way of going about life, of particularly going about spiritual maturity. And then he sets out the right way. So a couple of warnings, a false, two false ways, and two true, safe ways. He's given both of these before. He tells us that. But it's no trouble to keep repeating them because of what is at stake. Because what is at stake is their spiritual safety. I don't know if you've ever heard a talk on spiritual safety, but this is what Philippians 3 is about. And unfortunately, we do tend to ignore safety messages. Indeed, I think some have the view that if we are truly serious about our faith, about sharing the gospel, about making spiritual progress in our lives, well, such warnings are unnecessary. You only need the warnings for the people who are really cold towards the Lord or the people who are really sinning. But we, we're really, we're at New Horizon. We are making progress. We, we, I mean, we don't need to listen to warnings. Well, Paul clearly didn't think that. And the language is strong. You probably noticed it as I read it. In the first warning, Paul speaks of dogs. Now, he's not talking about the nice, cuddly dog that may be waiting for you at home. He's talking about wild, scavenger dogs. He refers to mutilators. 
That is people who do huge damage. He refers to evil workers. These are active, dedicated, zealous, religious, and terribly dangerous. In the second, equally strongly, he speaks of people who are enemies of the cross, whose God is their belly, who think only in terms of this world. And they are equally dangerous. So two warnings then, two safety announcements. And they begin with rejoice in the Lord. That means more than be happy. The idea of joy, of rejoicing, is much more that it's a deep down confidence. This is where we are to find our confidence and place our confidence in the Lord. And we will see very quickly how important this is. The detail behind the first of his warnings is probably a little remote and confusing for most of us today because we don't normally face it in the terms that the people in Philippi were facing it. Because the dogs that Paul is referring to were those who insisted that the Jewish rite of physical circumcision should be enforced on non-Jewish believers in Jesus. They, they saw Christianity as a type of advanced form of Judaism. It was the Old Testament religious system plus Jesus. But of course, Jesus doesn't top off the Old Testament system. He fulfills it. He replaces it. Being circumcised or not being circumcised has nothing to do with being real Christians. All the blessings of the gospel are ours through faith in Christ plus nothing. We are under a new covenant, which according to the letter to the Hebrews is not like the old one made with Israel. God hasn't taken Gentiles and added them to the Jews. God has taken both and of the two, says Paul in Ephesians, has made one new man, a new spiritual community, the body of Christ, the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. What lies at the heart of the danger, according to Paul, is the wrong kind of self-confidence. Now, we need to be careful to see exactly what Paul is saying. Having confidence psychologically is very important. Otherwise, we might never use the abilities God has given to us, abilities to reason, to interact with others, our creative abilities, our gifts, and so on. There is a right kind of self-confidence. Paul is not warning us about any kind of confidence. In fact, he's already spoken on a number of occasions of his own personal confidence, even faced with enormous opposition. The issue is where we place our confidence. And the mindset that he is warning us about in the strongest of terms is the mindset of what we might call religious people who place their confidence in what he terms the flesh. 
Now, what do you think of when you hear this term, the flesh? It probably sounds a bit grotesque. It's not a particularly attractive word, meat. What does Paul mean? Well, the word is used a number of different ways. In the Bible, it can simply refer to the stuff that hangs on our bones, the physical body. We are made of flesh as well as spirit. It is also used to refer simply to a human being. But through the Old Testament, and then especially in the New Testament, it came to acquire a more sinister technical meaning. The flesh as a rebellious attitude of self-confidence that is opposed to God, that displaces God as the source of wisdom and strength. The flesh as opposed to God's spirit. According to Romans 8, the flesh has a mind that is not subject to God's law. And Paul adds, neither indeed can it be. It is rebellious, independent, opposed to God. And this chapter reveals that there are at least two major sides to it. The end of the chapter is the more familiar side for us. People, says Paul, whose God is their belly, that is their appetites, or we might say their fleshly appetites. This is the permissive, the self-indulgent side of the flesh, but the flesh also has its refined side, its respectable side, its religious side, and that's what Paul addresses first. The dogs that Paul warns against are those whose confidence before God lies in themselves, in their own keeping of religious ritual, in their own religious zeal and devotion, in their own pedigree, in their own heritage. It's pride in their own self righteousness. And to set opposite that, the true way, the way of true Christianity is to serve by the Spirit of God. It is to glory in Christ and it is to have no confidence in the flesh in that sense. So the contrast Paul is making is not between atheists and believers or between immoral people and chaste people, but between those who seek salvation through faith in racial privilege, in self-effort, in religious rituals and disciplines, and those who seek salvation solely by faith in Christ and in union with him. It's about where we place our confidence what we trust in, what we boast in. To put it another way, the core issue is religion as opposed to the Christian gospel. And Paul gives us a list of where his confidence used to lie. His race and tribe, he was a full-blooded Jew, properly circumcised even of the tribe of Benjamin. Culturally, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. 
Although well-versed in Greek culture, he was by heritage and education a Hebrew. In terms of the particular division or sect of Judaism, he was a Pharisee, strict, highly educated, highly respected, a teacher of the law. In terms of his religious duty, faultless, he had followed the whole pattern for religious life set down in Judaism to the last Detail And as far as personal devotion was concerned and personal zeal, extreme and all-consuming passion to serve God led him into full-blooded opposition to Christ. So those he considered as God's enemies, especially the Christian. So in certain circles... Paul was truly impressive. One in great respect, authority amongst his own. So the question it raises, obvious question for me and you, where do we place our confidence? What do we rejoice in? If you were to make a list like Paul, what would be on it? Our religious identity and tradition? I'm an Anglican. I'm a Baptist. I'm Reformed. Our keeping of religious ritual? I've been baptized. I take communion regularly. Our zeal? I have a stellar church attendance record. I support missions. Our service, well, I'm an elder in my church. I give financially. I support missions. The gospel is the exact opposite of this kind of brash religious self-confidence. The gospel is not a way of us gaining favor with God by what we merit. The gospel excludes boasting in anything other than what Christ has done and given for us. And when Paul encountered Jesus, a huge switch in his value system took place. What he thought previously were gains, all this religious self-effort, He now considers loss, gain, loss. All that he previously thought was in the gains column, the profit column, he now sees was a waste of time. Conversion to Christ for him involved letting go all that. Everything he used to put his confidence in. Everything he used to consider gain before God. But let's please notice. This isn't Paul feeling sorry for himself. Not one little bit. He says, I consider it all rubbish. The stuff that kicks about the street. The stuff that the dogs would be scavenging among. Well, they're welcome to it, he said. Just watch out for them. That's all garbage. There is no comparison. And we have to feel the sense of relief, the liberation, the joy that 
Justification before God has nothing to do with my merit, with my religious heritage, with my service record, with my achievement. It is entirely from God. It is a gift. It is, as he puts it, by faith in Christ plus nothing. But this is part of a safety announcement. Please remember that. The danger, therefore, for these Philippians who were keen to partner in the gospel, who were keen to make spiritual progress, and they had little voices in their ears. You know, if you want to be truly spiritual, here are a number of things you need to add. I mean, it's very good to trust Christ. That's wonderful. But there's some things you need to add in. In their case, of course, it was circumcision and all the ritual and so on, but you might want to add in other things. These people are dogs. They're mutilators. They're evil workers. They want to compromise your faith in Christ by getting you to submit to the teaching that circumcision or some other such ceremony and law-keeping, after all, are necessary for acceptance with God. And having started well, you end up being mutilated in your spiritual lives. And I have to say, I have met many people who are mutilated in their spiritual lives, who have found themselves under a professing Christian regime which does little other than batter them into submission by the wrong application, particularly of the Old Testament. And they're mutilated. The joy has gone. Christianity has become a grim, duty-driven performance. And the joy has gone. The slavery and fear of thinking that acceptance with God after all needs to be earned somehow and depends on individual merit and that service for God is about piling up religious Self-effort to make myself feel that now I'm good enough to merit God's grace. You will never be. I will never be good enough. Let's stop trying with that motivation. It's never far from the door. We so easily slip back to religion, to self-righteous arrogance. Our confidence that should be in Christ and in Christ alone is replaced by confidence in all of these other things, our religious heritage, our personal zeal, the consistency of our devotions this week, our service achievements, and all those other things, even down to the version of the Bible we read. This, brothers and sisters, is ugly, self-righteous, arrogant, religious flesh. And sadly, it still struts its stuff in churches across the land. Paul's confidence is in Christ. 
not his own achievement. And that then comes out in his ambitions, in the spiritual orientation of his life, in his approach to living for God. Because no longer is it about making himself more acceptable to God. It isn't about justifying himself before God or even others. It is not to pile up merit and spiritual brownie points. It is not even to become a morally righteous person. His goal, his ambition is to know Christ. That's the ambition. I want to know Christ, he says. What does that involve? The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul, of course, already knows Christ. He met him on the Damascus road. He switched his value system that day. So what does this mean? What do you mean knowing Christ Paul, what does this involve? Well, he tells us the core things are knowing the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, not one without the other, not the first 25 years with the power of the resurrection and then a wee bit of suffering, but the two uh, together, the one with the other. As believers in Jesus Christ, you And I have already experienced the power of Christ's resurrection. We are born again to a living hope through his resurrection from the dead. Paul's pressing desire is to know more and more of that same resurrection power in his life at the same time as he knows more and more about what it means to partner with Jesus in his suffering. We like the power bit. And it's not about feeling powerful. Sometimes the way we talk about this makes it seem that we're going to feel as if we're on a Honda 750, you know, and we just have the room of power and, oh, wow, what it is to be a Christian. And the other days when we're not, it's more like a Yamaha 50 and we're going, you know, or a scooter, even worse. It's not about feelings of power. It's about experience, resurrection in our life. Ephesians, Paul tells us that the same incomparably great power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that is at work in us to make us holy to make us individually and collectively a fit habitation for Christ. The power to help us to grasp the dimensions together with all the sense of the love of God. Resurrection power, but participation of sharing in his sufferings. Have you ever gone to visit someone who is ill who is suffering, and said those uh, typical and very unwise words, I know what you're going through. And the person kind of looks at you thinking, 
please take this person out of my room. How could they possibly know what I'm going through? But then perhaps you say, look, I've been in a similar kind of thing. I know perhaps the kind of thing you're going through. Do we know Christ? Oh, we read the stories. When he was reviled, Peter says, he reviled not again. When he was mocked, he didn't threaten. Do you know that? Oh, I know the theory of it. I've read it. I know the description of Jesus. But do I know Jesus? Do I know Christ? In other words, have I experienced what he experienced? Have I walked with Jesus in that? Or when I am reviled, do I bite back? Knowing Christ is knowing the partnership in his sufferings. As Tim said in the Q&A yesterday, reminded us from Peter, we don't belong here. We need to remember that. As Paul tells us later in this chapter, our citizenship is in Belfast. No, it's not ultimately. It's in heaven. Jesus made it perfectly clear. The world will hate you because you don't belong to it. Paul repeatedly says things like, all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution of one kind or another. That just goes with the territory. This is what it's like. And it is part of knowing Christ. Peter says, listen, don't be surprised by the fiery trial. This is normal. Don't be surprised. Don't be frightened. Don't be stampeded. Knowing Christ, following Christ, means that we follow a king that the world rejected. The early Christians counted it a privilege to be worthy of sharing in his suffering. And yet at the first sign of a nasty comment on social media, how hurt and defensive and angry we can find ourselves being. We have, I think, often very sort of vague and almost super spiritual, mystical notions as to what knowing Christ involves. But it's actually very practical. Knowing his resurrection life and participating in his sufferings in real experience. You know the theory that Christ forgives, don't you? But do you know him? I mean, do you know him enough to actually forgive yourself? So that as Christ forgive others and accepted others despite their misunderstandings and the crazy things they said, that you would do the same? That's knowing Christ. It's one thing to be able to go and do a study session on the attributes of God and the attributes of Christ and be able to answer questions on an exam paper. The real exam paper is today. 
It's the people you encounter. It's the folks in your family. It's the folks in your church. And if you are harboring and holding on to grudges against other believers, can you really say that you know Christ? If you don't know what it is to extend the grace of God to brothers and sisters, can you say you know Christ? Has the gospel touched my life? This is not easy. But this is the prime ambition of Paul's life. And then he speaks of becoming like Christ in his death and somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Notice the order this time. It's first the death and then the resurrection. Becoming more conformed to his death, says Paul, we become at the same time more conformed to his resurrection. And Paul is not speaking here of attaining the event of the final resurrection. Chapter 1, and indeed this chapter, makes it absolutely clear that Paul had no doubt about the fact that one day he's going to be with Jesus. What he's talking about is the state of his resurrection life, the reality of experience, his resurrection life in our experience. Paul is talking about a complete moral and spiritual conformity to the risen Christ that one day will be finally accomplished at the coming of Jesus, but he has set his heart to progress towards that goal. Not by submitting himself to religious ordinances and disciplines and empty human philosophies and pop psychologies, but by seeking to know Christ. And in knowing Christ, not to allow his service to turn into some kind of religious drudgery. As I know from personal experience, it can so easily become But remember where this chapter began. Rejoice in the Lord. Know Christ. Become like Christ. And Christ's death was death on a cross. The cross was God's verdict on human flesh, on human self-effort. So the more we become conformed to this death and daily living and carry our cross and put that X over self and say no to self, the more we become conformed to the resurrection life of Christ. And now let's notice that in all this desire, And in all this enthusing to others, and here's the true way as opposed to the false way of religion, there isn't the slightest hint that Paul thinks he has arrived. What a tragedy it is. I remember talking to my mum years ago, must be 50 years ago at least. And she said she was brought up with the kind of preaching and teaching where the preachers and teachers never admitted that they hadn't arrived. I'm not suggesting that 
those of us who teach and preach, shake out our dirty linen in public. That's not what I'm talking about. But can't we at least do this? If the Apostle Paul can say, I haven't arrived yet. <laughs> I'm certainly going to have to say it whether I think it or not. I mean, think. Think of what he's already attained. The planting of churches all over the place. The thousands one to Christ. Direct revelations from Christ himself to enable him to write the all-time world bestseller. How tempting it would have been for him to revert to his former way of thinking and be impressed with his achievements. You know, I'm cool. I'm cool. Look at me. Wow, Paul, way to go, son. What an ugly thing when leaders behave like that, when teachers behave like that. Paul rejects what some people have called a a kind of super spirituality. The mindset of those who, you know, have have arrived. Oh, I know there are one or two things I I, I really don't, but basically, you know, I've arrived. There's no spiritual stagnation about him either. He refuses to settle back. Where are you, Paul, in prison? Would you not think now is the moment just to say, well, do you know what? There's no more progress to be made. There's always progress to be made. You are still here, aren't you? Just checking, you're still here. God hasn't taken you home yet. Just touch yourself just to make sure you're still here. Well, you know, you got up this morning. You, you got to do something with your day. You're here Why not see this day as the gift of God that enables me to know Christ and to make progress towards that goal, to experience more and more of that resurrection life, but to experience more and more in that process of the X over self so I can follow Jesus. This is the context of his famous statement, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize. He's thinking again of the athletics metaphor here. He sees it as that. That's the goal of of total conformity to Christ. That's the goal. I am pressing towards that. I know that one day I am going to be transformed on this body of mine is going to be transformed. But that's not a motivation for me to just sit back and just let go and let God. I am going to focus and strain every sinew and press like a racehorse towards the line of being more like my Savior. No wonder he says earlier that to be with Christ is far better. I mean, if, he, if his whole confidence is in Christ and his whole ambition is knowing Christ and to be like him, to be with him is the ultimate glory. It's the ultimate purpose of life. This, says Paul, is the attitude of true spiritual maturity. So, at least... Live up to the level of 
progress you've made so far. Don't let it slip by. Keep pressing on. Strain forward towards the glory that is still to be revealed. Do not be content with yesterday's progress. Today is a new day. There are new challenges. It actually might be the same challenge. And maybe what you and I are learning is dealing with the same thing that we've dealt with for 30 years. In terms perhaps of a disability, in terms of caring for someone, in terms of dealing with a really difficult relationship. Even in that, pressing on to know Christ. I have turned 66 as the clock turns to 11. I feel the temptation to settle down. had a couple of big surgeries last year. It's something of a miracle that I'm here at all. And the temptation is that, yeah, well, when I was in my late teens and 20s and 30s and we were planting the church and we were doing all sorts of things, do you know, I've done, I've done that. I've done my growing. But you know something? I have not known Jesus as a 66-year-old before. Never have. My dad lived long enough too, my mom did, but I never have. I was asked in the tent what books had influenced me most and I was thinking of my childhood and my youth and I said without thinking, the Narnia stories, the Chronicles of Narnia. And do you remember a point, those of you, the rest of you, just glaze over, just think of something else. But there's a point in the Narnia stories where Lucy says to the great lion, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, that is because you are older, little one. Not because you are, she said. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. What a wonderful thing. That every year we grow, God doesn't get smaller He gets bigger. Christ doesn't get smaller. He gets bigger. And one of the reasons then, why, sadly, it seems there are so many bored Christians around, is because I think we have lost sight of this. Lost sight of this ambition of knowing Christ and being like him. We'll deal with the second safety announcement tomorrow. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how can we thank you for the sheer privilege of knowing you in Northern Ireland in 2019? We have never been here before. We have never lived this day before. You have given us a gift of a new day. 
to know you, to become like you. Oh Lord, deliver us from the dread hand and chains of religion. Of living our life on the basis of self effort and piling up personal merit. Deliver us from the desire even of being fine, upright, moral people. Rather, Lord, may we be people who know Christ and who are becoming daily more and more conformed to him in his death and in his resurrection for his glory. Amen.